We are in a series called Restored. The first thing I'd like to do this morning is open scriptures. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, or open your app, whatever it is that you use. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, grab one of the pew Bibles. Or if you just want to kind of be right where I am. I am on page 966. 966 of the pew Bible. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. I think I even actually have a slide for it. Do I have a slide for that, Gloria? Huh, I do. Look at that. So you can see it in your hands and on the screen. Here we go. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. Here Paul is quoting from... Psalm 116. So he he takes that quote from Psalm 116. He says, So we also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is our text for this morning. I want to spend some time here and just kind of walk through the text. We're in a series called Restored, and we illustrate that here with a car. Last week I d- displayed, um, full display of my ignorance of cars. Uh, I mentioned the one of the few car parts I know aside from like brakes and alternator, a carburetor. And uh, Mark's dad was here, he leaned over to Alan and said, they haven't put those in cars for 20 years. So... <laughs> Carburetors are not things anymore, apparently. Um, so I'm not, not pretending to be something I'm not here, but this is the illustration we have because we've seen rundown cars and then you've seen you know, newer car, the old car that's been restored, remastered, changed, and, and fixed up. And you see those Model Ts down the road or whatever. And you're like, oh, that's really cool. That's what we're sort of claiming to some extent as a Christian movement. We belong to the Restoration or the Stone Campbell Movement There are thousands of churches across the world, millions of people who are connected directly to the things that we value most and believe. And so we've been talking about this over the past uh, few weeks, continue that for another two weeks after this uh, sermon, trying trying to go back a little bit and to see what it was that drove us and what continues to drive us today. Because we've continued to hang on to this phrase, restoration. We're part of the restoration movement, which is to say that something needed to be fixed up, right? Something needed to be restored. And so we're asking and answering the question, what is in need of restoration? What is it that we are restoring? Last week we talked about evangelism, uh, mission, spreading the gospel, whatever, whatever phrase you want to use, declaring the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, is, is what we talked about last week. This week we were talking about unity for worship. What are we trying to restore? What is being restored? What are we after when we talk about restoration? What we want to see is Christians laying aside division, strife, non-essential things so that we might be gathered together to declare the glories of God and to worship him appropriately. That's actually what we see right here in this text. 
That was what drove our movement early on in the early 1800s. This thing emerged as the, as the frontier was pushing west. They call it the Second Great Revival. There was a huge revival. And people began coming to the Lord in droves. And what they would do is they would go to a field and literally drag out a stump and step up on the stump and shout as loud as they could for people to hear when they preached or when they led singing. And, and they didn't have a division in, this, these early eight, in the early 18th. They didn't have a division saying, well, there's the Presbyterian field over there, Church of Christ field over here, and the Baptists are, their field's way down the lane. You don't even want to go. Right? They didn't do that. They just gathered together in one place. And as people who declared together the lordship of Jesus Christ, worshipped him. They just worshipped him. People came to, to salvation. They came to, to know God as they sang and, and worshiped together. And this whole, this, this is happening all over the place, just popping up organically. And Barton Stone is one of the early founders that I mentioned last week, and i talk a little bit again this week. He called this the polar star. Like, this is the thing, you know what a polar star is, right? The, the true north, if you get lost, you find the, the, the north star, and it gives you some idea of the cardinal direction. What is the direction for the church? The direction for the church is unity for worship, so that God can receive more glory, more honor, more praise. Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4 here, we didn't read this, but this happens just before the passage we did read. He calls us... Jars of clay. And I just love that so much. I, I compare that to the, the, the sour cream Tupperware, you know, that, uh, that you throw leftovers in after you're done with the sour cream. Like, it, it's a common vessel. It's something that's, it's just, it's, it's every day. It's average. And God takes the everyday average frail thing, this thing that breaks down really easy, this thing that gets lost. If you do that, you can't find the right top for the, so it's like, this is the Meyer sour cream, and this is Walmart sour cream. Does the top fit? No, it doesn't fit. I gotta find, like, you know, these things that we, we lose track of, it's, it's so common that you lose track of it. And Paul says, we are that common vessel. Every single one of us, me, Paul, this common vessel, and God has poured into these common vessels, like you, like me, like the Apostle Paul, like all the Corinthians there that claim Jesus Christ poured into us the ministry of declaring his glory and worshiping. Declaring his glory and worshiping. What is it that we are to testify to? You notice that he says that here in verse 13. The same spirit of faith that was in David who said, I believed and so I spoke and he spoke a lot. We got you know, 150 some odd psalms and they're not all of them of course by David but, but many of them. David believed and so he declared the glory of God in worship. Paul says we believe and so we declare the glory of God as well but the message has changed to some extent. David doesn't have as much, didn't have as much knowledge as we do now because Jesus hadn't come yet. So our message has changed to some extent. And Paul gives us the content of that message. So if you've ever said to yourself, I'm not really sure what I need to tell people. I don't really know how to evangelize. What is the message that I'm supposed to give to them? Paul gives us something really nice here in verse 14. He says, knowing that he, that is being God, right, who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That's a good capstone, good capstone of the good news, ending of the story. So, what do we have here? A fancy word. 
I like that word. Eschatological. The eschatological vision. Impress your friends and neighbors with this. Ladies swoon. Jobs are, are given. I mean, just start throwing this around. Raises are given. People are going to be like, wow, eschatological vision. It is not nearly as fancy as it seems. Um, this is the sort of ology, the study of something like that, right? Eschaton, add an N at the end of this, eschaton simply means, it's the Greek word that just means last things or the end of things. So eschatology is the study of last things, usually uh, connected to Bible prophecy, Revelation, uh, Matthew 24, these things we talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus coming back. In fact, the end of things is probably not a great way to put it. I like the way C.S. Lewis, as I was thinking about what I read here, I was thinking of C.S. Lewis's line. If anybody read the Chronicles of Narnia, if you haven't, you must. I love these books. The last line of the last book, C.S. Lewis says this. Of course, all of this is kind of the, his, his vision of the end of things, which is indeed the beginning of things. He says, now at last, they, that is the children of the story, the people of the story, were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one that is before it. Isn't that lovely? What we're talking about here as we read this passage is the wonder and mystery of eternal life. The message that we're declaring is a message of resurrection. It is a message of resurrection. So frequently we forget that we are promised this. And our speed to send people to heaven. We often forget what is written right here. What is the Christian's promise? What is the Christian's hope? It is that we will be ushered into the presence of God bodily. We will be ushered into the presence of God bodily. Certainly there is a change, there is something new. I love the way that Paul, and I think, I, I don't know if I did. Nope, I didn't. My bad. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. write that down. This is a wonderful little line. Paul puts it this way. Uh, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So that is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you hear the mixture of metaphors there? Jesus dies and is raised. What do we do? Fall asleep. Do you you hear the difference there? It's lovely. It's lovely should fire our imaginations. Jesus dies. He takes on full death. He takes on full, he takes everything. He dies and God raises him up as proof positive that God has the power and ability and will and desire to raise us as well. And therefore now every single believer who, 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 who dies, as we might use the word, Paul says, no, we fall asleep. We fall asleep. Because what happens when you fall asleep? Eventually, Ezri wakes you up, right? Sometimes frequently. Eventually, you wake up. Eventually, you wake up. So Jesus dies, but we fall asleep. I love that. That's the vision, the vision of our hope, the vision of what is to come. We are to be woken up again. And then secondly, Jesus ushers, we're with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about seeing God, but it scares me a little bit. I'm a little bit scared of it. If you read Revelation, which is my favorite book this week of the Bible, um, 
Jesus is pictured in Revelation, and he comes out, he's, he's, he's pictured, he's described one of two ways, either bizarrely or terrifyingly. Like, he's either weird, I don't know what's going on here, or I'm scared. Like, Paul, or, or John, who, who see, has this vision, he falls down, it says, falls down as if I were dead, just boom, just face plants when he sees Jesus, because he's terrifying or bizarre. And when it comes to God, the full revelation of God, all it ever describes is the throne. We're giving no description of God at all because God is too completely other. And that is exciting and terrifying. Right? It's all at the same time. And I love this line because it says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us. And then what? With Jesus. With Jesus. Our shepherd, our door, our comforter. The one who we've spent our time, our life, getting to know. Jesus is the one that brings us into the presence of God. So you don't go alone. We don't go alone into the presence of God, terrified and afraid and our knees knocking together any more than you know, they, they will be just because it'll be so, so, so other. But Jesus is there to comfort and to bring us into the presence of the fullness of the glory of God. I found that to be really interesting. And continuing the promise, remember what Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that I might come back and get you and take you to be with me so that where you are, there I may also be. Jesus fulfills his promise to take us with him into the presence of God. Thirdly, I want you to see that this is peopled. So frequently in our language, we use me and Jesus language, but notice what is Paul's hope here. He says, you will be raised just like Jesus was raised, and we will be brought, uh, I will, 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us, not me, not I, us, also with Jesus, and bring us with you into his presence. You notice the lack of singular pronouns there. It is all about the people of God gathered together. It is not a me and Jesus moment. It is us, all of us gathered together. Everyone from, from, from the very beginnings of the faith all the way to the very end of the faith, as it were, brought together and led by Jesus into the presence of God. That's incredible. So frequently we forget this. In fact, in fact the, the description of, uh, remember the, the wonderful song, we think it's a song, a hymn of some kind that might have been sung by the early church in, in Philippians chapter 2, where he says that every knee in heaven and on earth will bow and every tongue will confess. Those who believed in Jesus in life and those who did not at all. The whole world, when Jesus comes, bends its knee. The whole world sings God's praise because they see the truth of what it is. So frequently we forget that we are in this vision of what is to come, bound together. How often does the body, or how often does the Bible talk about us in those terms? The body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the new Israel, the new people, the new kingdom, the holy people. All these different phrases that are used to describe it, and all of them are plural in their nature. And we're driven and brought together to have this Communion. So the eschatological vision that we have here is one of God's 
people coming into God's presence. And as we know from other places in the Bible, God is surrounded by these otherworldly creatures, these seraphim, which seem to circle around flying. These burning ones is literally what the word means. Circles around the throne. And the cherubim, which are these multi-faced creatures that stand around as kind of protectors of the throne. And all of them spontaneously break out in praises. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They, They break out in these praises. Break out in worship. Break out in songs of victory. These things are what we have in this eschatological vision. Or I might put it this way. We have a vision of one people worshiping the one true God. Now, that is pretty, pretty incredible I think frequently part of the problem we have when we look at the eschatological vision, the vision of the future, as we think about the end of things, as we think about it all wraps up, frequently we have a more spiritual vision than a political vision. So hear me. What I mean by spiritual is otherworldly, um, spirits, souls, angels, harps, wings, clouds, light, uh, those kinds of things. What we're described is more like this. An inauguration of Jesus receiving all honor, all glory, all power, all authority. And around him, myriads of people, not just Americans, obviously this is a presidential inauguration, but, but, but people of every tribe and every tongue and, and every nation and every color drawn together in this one moment and standing before God to see God receive the kingdom, the, the, the reign, the rule, the glory, the new heavens, the new earth, the heavens, all of these different words that we use to try to scratch the surface of the glory of the reality that is to come. And we are all bound together shouting our praises in the victory that is finally achieved and the day that has finally come when the true ruler, the true king, the true president, the true sea, or whatever you want to use, the true sovereign of all creation is given the praise that he is due. And I cannot wait for that day. I cannot wait for that day. Anything that we have that's even, it pales in comparison. So what does all this mean? This is, this is the heavenly, I'm talking, this is all future talk. This is all future talk. You got, you got that? You with me? Nobody's daydreaming too bad? Rick? Where'd you run off to, Rick? Let's see. Uh, hiding in the back behind Ellie so I can't see you. It has an earthly reality. I want you to see that. This is a heavenly vision. Why does he give us the heavenly vision? Just so that we'll hope one day. Well, now you've got something nice to hope for. Yes, that's good. If you are struggling and striving today and you're saying, man, life is bitter and times are hard. There is the silver lining. He gave it to you. Keep the faith. Finish the race. Because there is laid up for you a crown of righteousness. Promised. Promised by God to those who stand firm till the end. So don't waver. Don't shake. Don't step back. If you don't have a piece of this, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, do it today so you can know that that crown is waiting for you because it isn't based upon how good you've lived your life because it's probably been bad. 
right? Just like mine, just like all of us. And we lean completely on the grace of God so that we might have that promised future. But it isn't just future. It must have earthly incarnation. It must have an earthly reality. It must have earthly play in your life today, in your life tomorrow, in your life every day after that. You with me? And Paul gives us that here in in verse 15. Look at your Bibles or the screen, whatever's easiest for you. For it is for your sake. Again, this your is not you singular. It is a plural plural pronoun, right? So it's for all y'all, all of us. Which means I also as an individual obviously can take it. It's also true for me. But his first meaning is everyone. It is for your sake, the sake of the church, the sake of all the people who have laid their faith in God. It is for your sake. So that grace extends to who? More and more people. Boy, maybe if you just probably could hover right there and, and add a little sermon there about are we extending grace to more and more people? Or are we extending what are we extending? Is it grace? Is it grace that you extended this week to your friends, your neighbors, your children, your, your enemies, your, the people at work that you don't like so much? Right? Is it grace? Grace extends to more and more people. It may right here, right now. Right. So he's talked about future things. Now he's talking about right now things. Might extend to more and more people right now to increase the thanksgiving that is due to God. Increasing thanksgiving to God, to the glory of God. We might use the word worship. He doesn't use the word worship here, but our praise, our thanksgiving, the glory of God, all of this is the content, the drive of our worship, what drives us to our knees, which drives us in hope, what brings us together. This is for the sake of the church. So here we have evangelism, just like connected back to last week, that that the grace of God that you're extending as you declare the glories of Jesus, as you declare the lordship of Jesus Christ in your words and in your deeds, that more and more people come and are embraced by this wonderful, beautiful, gracious mystery of God's love and salvation, that more and more people to come to it. But for what reason? For the worship of God, so that more people will give thanksgiving to God, that changes the way that changes the pressure of it, I think. It's, it's not about growing a bigger church. It's not about increasing your Bible study, your small church. It's not about proving somebody's wrong or right. It's about bringing people into a relationship with the church and with God so that more people equals more thanksgiving. It might be a place for us to check our hearts as well. If God has done all this for you, laid such great promises, given you the seal of his spirit so that you can have confidence even in the darkest times. Are you a person of thanksgiving or are you a negative Nancy? Are you a bitter person? Or are you a person who is overflowing with thanksgiving? Sometimes we get so inwardly focused or so problem focused that we forget to be God focused. And when we forget to be God focused, we forget thanksgiving and honor and praise and we sort of sink deeper and deeper into the negativity. You know what I'm talking about? Ever been there? And it's when we focus back upon God and we see all that he has done and will do that we begin to write our minds. And by writing our minds, write our attitudes and become the kind of people that we're to be, which is a people of great praise and thanksgiving. Paul isn't writing to rich people here in Corinth. He's writing to slaves. 
He's writing to people who are wrestling for their daily bread. He is writing to people who are under the thumb of, a, of a oppression, a, an oppressive Roman regime. People who are burdened by such tax loads that you don't even know what it's like to live like these people. And he can declare to them, you ought to be people of thanksgiving because of all that God has done for you. Find joy there. Find peace there. But what can... Um, what can, what can stop all this? So God's bringing more and more people together. We're a part of that as we minister and as we proclaim and as you share the gospel, invite people together, whatever it is, inviting them to small church, invite Bible study church, sharing the gospel with them at a coffee shop, whatever it is that you do, as you draw them together, what can stop all of this? Disunity, Right? As soon as we begin focusing on our differences, on our problems, on our, our own particular perspectives, as soon as we allow those things to kind of get in that disunity to get into the church, it, it breaks the church apart. And now instead of, of, of one body here declaring the grace of God, there are all of these different bodies who are busy fighting with one another. And this was the reality in the early days of our movement, which drove that polar star which stood in such stark contrast as the parties fought amongst one another, as the different denominations, Presbyterians, Methodists, all these different groups. And I think to some extent that still exists today. There was a revival that happened then early on that brought people together, and they said, let's be unified for the sake of worship. In fact, I've got a great little, here's, this is a, a long quote, and I, I apologize for this, but this is from the biography of Barton Stone where he describes what it looked like in those days, and I thought it was lovely. And I'd love to see it happen today. So I wanted to share it with you. He says this. This is re- referring to the meetings, the, the, the revivals I was describing. The effects of the meeting through the country were like fire in dry stubble, driven by a strong wind, and all felt its influence more or less. Soon after, we had a protracting meeting at uh, Concord, which is in Kentucky, a little place in Kentucky, The whole country appeared to be in motion to the place and multitudes of all denominations attended. All seemed heartily to unite in the work and in Christian love. Party spirit, here's talking about like your your commitment to your own denomination. Party spirit was abashed, it shrunk away. To give a true description of this meeting cannot be done. It would border on the marvelous. And it continued for five days and night without ceasing, all day, all night without ceasing. Many, very many, will through eternity remember it with thanksgiving and praise. I, I want to I experience that. That's what, that's what I want. Th- this is a vision. This is an eschatological vision right here. This is what God is after. And he's not after it in the future. He's after this today. The resurrection, that's the future. The judgment, that's the future. The new heavens and the new earth, the removal of pain and suffering and sorrow, all these things in the future. But right now, this is doable. Right now, we can live out a life of worship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, here's where the, the difficult area happens. Where, where do we say, well, this is essential and you are outside of the faith? And where do we say this is something we can set aside and disagree about? That's, 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 that's the issue. That's a struggle. And that's a struggle that our churches have had. That's a struggle that all churches have. And I'm not going to solve that here today. Other than to say that we have historically, and I, I hope continually, had 
a broad view of grace. For instance, in many churches, you'll have to share the same view of atonement. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. It's a fancy theological term with a lot of baggage. Where's Jack? Where's he at? He was here. There's Jack. Jack and I disagree about atonement. A core doctrinal issue in other churches, Jack, as an elder, would have to say, you got to get out. We're not, we're, not, we're not on the same page. He hasn't done that yet. <laughs> we, have, we, have, we, have, we have room. We give each other room. Why? Not because these aren't important issues. Not because we shouldn't try to find some agreement, which we really haven't done. We just sort of shot each other across the bow. <laughs> but but you know, those, are, those, are wonderful, those are wonderful places where we could sit down and we could, we could agree as brothers. And, and we would search the scriptures and what about this and what about this and what about this. And in the end, I suspect if we came out on different camps, we would still worship in the same church. Because what is not expressly written in Scripture does not bind us. Whereas things that are expressly written do not. It's interesting, he writes to the Corinthian church. And if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is a pretty harsh little little area. And in 1 Corinthians, uh, there's all kinds of issues, all kinds of moral issues. I mean, serious moral issues. And yet when Paul writes to them, he writes to the church of God in Corinth. He doesn't doubt their salvation does that mean he says well you know we're just going to get along and live and let live and you know don't worry about it i don't sin's not a big deal no right he rebukes them harshly he says listen you guys need to be living holy lives lives that are driven by a pursuit of the holiness of god and a unity in the faith for the worship of god and any place that you're deviating from that i'm going to come down on you hard but god's grace is still holding you and drawing you, and calling you. One of the difficulties of our church is to let go of those non-essentials, those fights, those things that draw us apart, not just so that we can be unified for the sake of unity, but so that we can be unified for the sake of worship, so that with one voice we declare the glory and mystery of God. Practically then, I would say this, two things. First, We should worship more and fight less. (laughs) We should worship more and fight less. Now, I'm all about fighting. I have a lot of opinions, and all of them are right. And so, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy. I'm perfectly happy to fight with you. But at the end of the day, we should be worshiping more and fighting less. More praise, more glory, more honor to God. That's that's the goal. And secondly, we should look for friends. And I find this, this, so this is sort of self, I'm sort of opening my own sin cabinet? Something like that. (laughs) Sharing my, airing my own issues. I frequently don't look for friends, I look for enemies. I read something and my, I'm I'm a critical person. Something I struggle with. And so I don't give people the benefit of the doubt. I read something and I'm like, how can I prove that guy wrong? (laughs) How can I, how can I, that doesn't sound quite right to me. That doesn't sound, that one line doesn't, and so instead of saying to myself, well, you know, maybe they misspoke, maybe I don't understand, maybe we're missing each other, maybe, before I even, even offer grace, I'm like, well, let me tell you, because I'm not looking for friends, I'm looking for enemies. And as our society gets darker and darker and darker, it will become more and more divisive, more and more full of hate, more and more full of anger, more and more full of division, 
And what we ought to do as people who believe in grace, and our whole goal is to spread, as we just read here in, in verse 14, to, that grace would extend. Grace, grace. We say this like grace, grace, marvelous grace. This is the old hymn that you sing. Grace that is greater than all my sin. That's the grace that is to be extended. That's our first and primary mission. And the best way to extend grace is to look for friends. To find people that you can extend that grace to. Barnes, so now close on this so the, the music team can come up if they wish. Or I can stand and sing a solo, whatever, whatever you guys want. Um, this is from the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery, which is a document that Stone and several of his friends composed. They were all Presbyterians. And they had this, they had this vision as this polar star. They, they you just saw all these Christians gathering together. And they're like, why are we calling ourselves Presbyterians? When as soon as I do that, I have created a barrier between me and a, a Methodist, for instance. So why would I do that, right? And so, so they, they sort of wrote this last will in Testament, like, you know, you, you write your last will, I'm going to die, and here, I want all of my belongings, you know, to go here. They wrote this last will in Testament, and this Springfield was the area they were, Presbytery. And this is one of the items that they wrote in that last will, and I thought it was lovely. Beautiful, beautiful. We will, we want, we desire that preachers, I feel guilty, that's me, right? And people, that's all y'all, cultivate a spirit of mutual forbearance. Imagine that. A spirit of mutual forbearance. That we pray more and dispute less. And while they behold the signs of the times, look up and confidently expect the redemption that draweth nigh. That would be an incredible church, wouldn't it? That would be grace extending to more and more people. I think that's a grace that people hunger for, that they're desperate for, that you have in your little sour cream Tupperware container to share with other people. That we ought to look to the sky, that we ought to look to the thing that is coming soon, and that by, as we look to the glory, as we look at the eschatological vision, this thing that is to come, that it should change the way I live my life today. It should change the way I interact with everyone, not just because I have such great hope, but because today I am a living representation, a living embodiment of what it means to say, one day I'll be in the presence of God. Because today, all y'all are in the presence of God. You are the temple of God. This is eminently doable for all of us, though it is difficult. So let us worship more and fight less. Let us look for friends. Let us extend grace more and more. Let us pursue mutual forbearance. Let us look for the redemption that draws nigh. Let's stand as we worship in praise and thanksgiving to our God.